Good evening. Tonight we will be in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Um, when you get there, please uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It'll be Matthew, we'll be starting in Matthew 24, verse 35, going through to 51. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son may be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be left in the field. <coughs> Sorry. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken, the other one left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would have come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord had made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is the servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all of his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of, the, of that servant shall come in the day, when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day that you have given us to set aside during the week to worship you and to seek your face as a congregation of believers. Lord, thank you for your word, how it's been passed down correctly over so many generations and so many different languages by faithful men and women who would translate the who translated it and protected it and kept it safe from people who sought to destroy it. God, you've preserved your word and thank you for allowing it to be in an English that we or in English and in a language we can understand. Lord, um, thank you again that we can come here tonight and hear from your word. Um, help me to be faithful in, in my speaking and Lord, um, pray you just bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when uh, we started this series on apologetics. If you remember, I, I went through a sermon on contending for the faith, which I said was an inner church thing, and then defending the faith, as in when we talk to people outside of the church. And then uh, we talked a little bit about false teachers in there, because Jude is all about false teachers. And he, Jude emphasizes there in verse 3 the importance of holding to the faith that was once and for all passed down to the saints. And, of course, Pastor Tim broke that down even more last week. And we were talking about the idea of false teachers, uh, Pastor Tim and I were, and the idea of false teachers and these false prophets who come. And it reminded me of this movement that I mentioned briefly when I was talking about contending for the faith called the uh, New Apostolic Reformation. This idea, uh, it's basically a continuation of the restoration movement of the church. If that's, that's, it took place in the 1800s. It basically, the restoration uh, movement involves the disciples of Christ and churches like that forming, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, this idea of restoring a church that had been um, 
basically saying the true church hadn't existed until, the, until it was restored in the 1800s. Well, the New Apostolic Reformation teaches that there needs to be apostles and prophets in the church again as added offices, and they believe this idea of bringing heaven to earth, that through controlling all the types of media and other things in the world, they'll be able to bring heaven to earth, and that people will be able to prophesy and make acts of judgment happen or acts of healing and all sorts of uh, craziness. And it really uh, came to my mind, and we'll probably talk about that more another time, but it came to my mind because it's all over Christian radio. Most of the songs you hear are usually by Bethel or Jesus Culture or Elevation, one of these churches affiliated with the New Apostolic Reformation. And it got me thinking some more about end times, weird end times views, or when you emphasize the end times too much in your theology and the danger, the danger of looking up when you should be uh, seeking to do the things of God here while we're waiting for Christ to come. So I wanted to kind of, um, uh, my, my, the sermon's going to be kind of two parts. The first part was, uh, is going to be more of addressing some of these end times things that happen in Christianity, these, these offshoots of Christianity that, and uh, the problem with looking down and st- or looking up instead of, uh, or looking at the newspaper instead of looking for, or instead of doing the work of Christ while we're waiting. And then the second half will be what should we be doing instead. So without further ado, let's start. So the 1800s were a really weird time in America for Christianity. And a lot of this is all focused on American Christianity because that's where it, it pretty much happens. So the 1800s were a weird time. And you, you have a new country. We're now separated from the British. Uh, you have the Second Great Awakening happening in like the 1810s to the 1830s. Uh, people are coming to Christ. It's, there's a great time of um, kind of, of optimism. But then... You also have times of great poverty. The East Coast is becoming very, 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 very packed. People have not really moved past the Appalachian Mountains, and there's a lot of people living on the East Coast, and they're running out of space, and they're running out of money. You have a lot of people looking for hope, and then even worse, in the 1830s, you get a, a, a depression that happens. People are losing their jobs like crazy, and this leads to, of course, the 1840s and then 1849 when a bunch of people go out west to start mining for gold. And they figure life has to be better out there than it is over here. So there's this hope that there's this, this, this view that we need to get the world better. Maybe there's got to be a better way of living. Like we're all looking for, is there, can we get out of this mess? It's terrible. We don't want to be here anymore. And uh, you, you may be familiar with that sentiment. I think every single human deals with this at some point in their lives or uh, maybe for their whole life, depending on where and when they live. Um, you see things around you and how the culture shifts. And you might say, well, Maranatha, you know, Lord, come quickly. I don't want to live with this anymore. Like all the death, all the destruction, the wars, the, you know, just, um, just debauchery in the streets. And that's the same kind of sentiment you had going on in the early 1800s. So there was a man named William Miller. He was born a Baptist. His father served in the Revolutionary War. And William Miller, he was Baptist, and then he became a deist. If you're familiar with deism, it's the religion, it's a false religion that a lot of the founding fathers followed, where you could use Christian terms and sound Christian, but you weren't really Christian. Basically, the idea was that God was this watchmaker, essentially, who, if you can imagine, like, you know, you're making this watch, you're meticulously putting all the gears together, you finish it, and then you set it down and just watch it. And that's how a lot of deists felt, was that they wanted to kind of pair this enlightenment idea that led to the revolution and led to the French Revolution as well. They wanted to kind of pair this enlightenment idea with religion without getting rid of religion, which happens later in like a century or a century later. That's when kind of the religion gets taken out of it. 
So they wanted to kind of pair God with religion, so they had this idea of deism. So essentially God creates the universe like a watchmaker and then puts it down and just kind of steps back and watches it. So he was a deist, and then he served in the War of 1812, and he gets back in 1815 from the War of 1812, and um, suddenly he, he happens to be at a church and gets challenged and uh, decides to rethink his faith. Well, then some friends of his say, well, what about all this other stuff in the Bible? Like, they keep trying to bring up things that he was skeptical of or that they were skeptical of. And he goes, well, you know what? I'm not going to be a skeptic. I am going to make sure I understand what this is all about. So he starts going through the Bible verse by verse, which is a great thing, Genesis through the end. And he doesn't stop until he basically sits on a verse until he, he has determined that he completely understands what's going on. So Miller keeps doing this until finally he starts getting obsessed with something. Can I predict the end of the world? And I'm assuming this is happening uh, when he gets to the book of Daniel, because that's where he really spends most of his time. He gets to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which um, has a certain number in it. He gets to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, and he says, well, this 2,300 days... It says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And he figured, okay, well, it's two thousand and three hundred days. Let's change those to years. The year that Jerusalem started getting rebuilt was uh, 457. So if we do the math, that means Jesus will be coming back in 1843, was kind of what he comes down to. Now, he determines this in the 1820s, but he doesn't tell anyone. And, by the way, this is up in New England, up in Massachusetts. That doesn't matter too much, but just, just so you know. So he determines he's not going to tell anyone until 1831. At this point, he's been um, licensed to preach in a Baptist church, and he starts sharing his view about the end of the world happening in 1843. Well, at first, he didn't want to narrow down a date. Um, and it's funny, all these end times guys, they always see this verse in Matthew 24. They always see, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And they see it, and they worry about it, and then eventually they decide there's an exception clause and that they can figure it out. So he doesn't want to narrow down a date. So he's like, okay, it's going to be sometime between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. As a side note, this is a really weird year in American history for religion, because this is the same, 1844 is the same year that Joseph Smith gets um, killed for, um, and, and basically, if, I, I, I personally believe that if he hadn't died, the Church of Latter-day Saints would have collapsed with him but, in a couple of years. But anyway, it's, that's the year, 1844 is the year that Joseph Smith got martyred. So as another side note in weird, weird American history for religion. But back to the, the current thing. March 21st, 1844 happens, and as you guys can tell, Jesus did not come back. Uh, we're still here. So Jesus did not come back. And, you know, he's thinking, well, what happened? I did all the math. I crossed, you know, I made sure all the pluses were there. Well, he, he determines, okay, let's go off the, uh, I'm going to, I don't know how to pronounce this. It's the Karite Jewish calendar. It's an offshoot of the Jewish religion, K-A-R-A-I-T-E. So he says, let's go off of their Jewish calendar, 10-22-1844, October 22nd, 1844. That will be the day that Jesus comes back. So at this point, anywhere between 50,000 to a half a million people are following this guy's teachings. They're called the Millerites. Also, but that's their slang. That's the, the, um, 
mocking word for them. They refer to themselves as Adventists, and later many of them become the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But William Miller uh, tells him, yeah, October 10th, October 22nd, 1844. So there's stories all over the place of how people were preparing for this. There's even, um, I believe it's Camden State Park in Maine, there's cliffs called the Millerite Cliffs, where apparently Millerites were sitting up there wearing white ascension robes, as they called them, watching for the coming of Christ, which didn't happen. People were climbing mountains, they were climbing trees, thinking that they could get closer to the um, they could get closer to the ascension and get ascended quicker, as if that's how it worked. Um, many of them sold all their possessions and were just really believing this was going to happen. Well, it doesn't happen. And uh, there's stories all over the place of people who go through despair and despondency for a few days because they, they were all amped for this event and it doesn't take place. This date in history is called the Great Disappointment. The Great Disappointment. Um, and that's actually the term for it. They coined it themselves. The Great Disappointment. And after the Great Disappointment, William Miller kind of faded into obscurity. He still publicly spoke, but as you can imagine, he lost all of his followers. So, one follower of his, one follower of his did not really leave. Her name was Ellen Harmon. Ellen Harmon was 17 when the Great Disappointment happened. And a few weeks after the Great Disappointment, at a prayer meeting, she allegedly prophesied, the first of one of her 2,000 prophecies. She allegedly prophesied at a prayer meeting, saying that she saw the Adventists, or the Millerites, on a journey to the city of God. And it gave a lot of people hope. So two years later, she's 19 years old. And it's 1846, and she marries a man named James White, who was an Adventist preacher. Now, uh, I want to make a note that just like... William Miller, Ellen Harmon had no theological training or background. Just want to point that out. She had no theological training or background. So she marries James White, and she becomes Ellen White, or Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So he was an Adventist preacher, and by 1847, so she's about 20 years old, three years after the Great Disappointment, she has a vision, she says, of the fourth commandment surrounded by a halo in the heavenly temple, and decides... We're supposed to worship on Saturdays and make Saturday a first, worshiping on Saturday as the Sabbath a first level doctrine, uh, basically a legalistic doctrine. So the Seventh day Adventist Church at that moment was born uh, unofficially, really. She wrote 60 books in total and about 10,000 pages of prophecy. I'm going to put quotes on that prophecy in her lifetime. The problem is, Ellen White had a lot of really, really, really weird beliefs and. These are important because there's two more cults I'm going to mention that come out of this that are even weirder. But Ellen's weird beliefs, so here we go. She believed in the great controversy, this idea that Christ and his angels are locked in a war with Satan and his angels, and that Christians are going to be the ones who help Christ win the war. So basically, he need the reinforcements, right? Um, she believed in the gospel of health, this idea that flesh meat, as she called it, so like think pig meat, cow meat, hurts the body and soul. As a side note there, uh, I don't remember his full name, but Mr. Kellogg, who invented cornflakes, was a Seventh-day Adventist trying to create a vegetarian alternative to uh, meaty breakfast. So that's a little side note for you. She also believed in soul sleep, the idea that believers, when they die, their soul is asleep until the day that Christ comes back. And then she also believed in annihilationism, the idea that unbelievers will just be annihilated, that there's no hell. 
and then she belie- she repudiated the idea of plenary inspiration in, of Scripture, so that the Bible is verbally inspired. And wouldn't it be convenient if you're someone who's a prophet saying things that are not biblical, that now you can say, well, the Bible itself was not really inspired, and let's repudiate that. Uh, kind of giving herself an out to be a prophet who can say what she wants. And then finally, she also believed that believers' sins are placed on Satan as a scapegoat. And that is probably the worst thing she's taught. Uh, today, there's around 19 million Seventh-day Adventists, and they're all over the spectrum on how much of this that they actually follow and believe. But they're all still waiting this second coming of Christ. They believe that the great disappointment was a spiritual coming, but not really the physical coming. So they're still waiting that physical coming. Now... In the 1860s, a young man joins the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was raised Presbyterian, but at the age of 16, he was stumped by the skeptical questions from one of his friends. This led him to leave his church in 1868, and he joined an Adventist church, which he liked better. It lined up with his views. That young man was Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell, by the time he was 18, has gone from two years ago being stumped for his faith to leading a small Bible study with like-minded people. Sounds good on paper. It's terrible in, it's terrible in practice because we just talked about those weird things that Ellen White b- believed, like annihilationism, soul sleep, um, Christ not really being the substitute for our sins, etc. Well, now mix that with some even more craziness. Charles Taze Russell taught that when he was 18, he was teaching that there was no trinity, that Jesus and Michael the archangel were one and the same, and they were both the first, and he was the first creation, taught that the Holy Spirit was a force, taught annihilationism, taught that there was no bodily resurrection of Christ, but he was obsessed with the return of Christ, just like the previous Adventist had been. So in 1876, he's probably, he's around, um, what would this be? Uh, 1876, he's about 26 years old. He prophesied that Jesus would return in 1878. So once again, as you guys can tell, Jesus did not return in 1878. And after this failure, he decided that um, uh, he was wrong and that the date was actually going to be 1914. 1914 was once again a great disappointment. There's even photos of Jehovah's Witnesses outside of the pyramids, like these old grainy black and white photos of them outside the pyramids looking over towards Israel, because um, at that time Egypt was controlled by Britain. They're, they're, in, they're in Cairo, near the pyramids, looking towards Israel, waiting for the clouds to open up, and it doesn't happen. So two years later, Charles Taze Russell dies. His followers mainly follow Rutherford, and they become the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so once again, another cult based on a false prophet who b- tried predicting the end of the world, even though the Bible expressly, expressly forbids it. And what's not, what, there's millions of Jehovah's Witnesses. I think there's two million today, but who knows how many millions have been deceived since, or like, since 1916 till today. And just the deception goes great. It's, it's, it's a wicked scheme of Satan. But now we're, um, I'm going to, uh, oh yeah, I did my order wrong here. David Koresh. Let's talk about David Koresh. Surely you all know that name. So, David Koresh is yet another, the other cult that was a break-off of the Seventh-day Adventists, or because of the Millerite movement. So, in 1935, a Bulgarian immigrant named Victor Hulov, he had been kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist church five years before for his beliefs, so he created the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, after his death, his wife gave a failed prophecy of 
apocalyptic events to occur on April 22nd, 1959. So after that, she decides to sell off her stuff. She sells her Mount Carmel property there uh, in Waco, Texas in 1962. It was bought by Ben and Lois Roden and their son George. And they created the Branch Davidians, meaning that there's uh, that Christ is the Branch of David, and that was their emphasis. So Ben dies in 1978, and Lois becomes the prophet. In 1981, a former Southern Baptist, a young man, he's in his 20s, named Vernon Howe, joins the church. He, uh, he leaves in 1983 to create his own group called the Davidian Branch Davidians. Mainly he was kicked out by the group's son, um, George, because he w- uh, Vernon Howe was claiming that he was supposed to marry the, um, he was supposed to marry, based on a prophecy, he was supposed to marry Lois, and then her son would be the, would possibly be the second coming of Christ. Well, anyway, he, he takes on the name David Koresh, or meaning related to King David, and Koresh, which is um, Hebrew for Cyrus. So he believes he's like a King Cyrus, preparing the way for the return of Jerusalem. He's like David, he's going to, pre- and he also likened himself to Elijah, or he called himself the Lamb from Revelation, but not that he's Christ, but that he's preparing the way for Christ, and that his child would be the second coming of Christ. So David Koresh, of course, we, uh, we, I don't have to go into detail. You all know how his story ended. It ended in a whole lot of tragedy, a lot of children dying, um, a lot of law enforcement dying or being wounded, trying to do the right thing, uh, and Waco has his facility burned down. And you would think that was the end of the story, but it's not. There are actually offshoots of the Branch Davidians today who are waiting for David Koresh to resurrect or to return. So uh, all of that, remember, all that stems from William Miller trying to predict the end of the world. All right. And then finally, uh, uh, another weird uh, apocalyptic cult um, related to Christianity, the People's Temple. The People's Temple. So Jim Jones, his whole entire purpose was he was trying to create a a communist utopia like basically to create a better world through a communist utopia that would be his way of making the world better was a communist utopia and he did this through the guise of christianity at first and then it went completely off the rails as time went on so in the 1950s he participated in the latter rain and healing revivals in the pentecostal church and he created the people's temple in indianapolis in 1955 In 1964, the Disciples of Christ Church, the denomination, ordained him and accepted his church on their their roles. Uh, I don't know how soon they got rid of him, but I'm sure it had to be soon after, hopefully. I don't know if they did or not. But, of course, he started started teaching this idea of apostolic socialism from Acts Acts 2. He was saying that that's basically what was being displayed in Acts 2, which is not the case, but... Uh, it was a form of communism, and then he started claiming later to be the true God, that he was going to bring about this true kingdom on earth, and it was going to be through the form of socialism. And, of course, in 1978, things started going south. Um, he, he and his followers killed a congressman, and since the USSR wasn't going to give them a plane ride out of Guyana, he did the revolutionary suicide, and over 900 people died. Once again, this is a guy who claimed Christ, and many people were persuaded. At one point, he had 3,000 followers at his church who believed that he was teaching a true form of Christianity. 
And finally, the most recent one I was going to bring up is Harold Camping. You guys may remember this in 2011. Um, Harold Camping, he had taught, he had made predictions of Christ coming back a couple times. But in May 21, May 21, 2011, he said that that would be the beginning of the end. And then by 10, 21, 2011, the world would end. Now, that was a weird time. I know it's only like a little over 10 years ago. But if you all remember, people were freaking out because, oh, man, 2012, that's when the Mayan calendar ends. That's going to be the end of the world. So there was all sorts of pandemonium. You know, a, a, a weird Noah movie came out, which I wouldn't recommend. A weird Noah movie came out. You had, 20, you had uh, 2012, which is basically just a things getting destroyed movie coming out. And people were obsessed with the idea that the world was going to end. And, of course, it didn't. And Harold Camping was wrong. To Harold Camping's credit, he apologized and said what he did was sinful, and then he faded into obscurity until he died. Um, so to his credit, he did that. But there's been many people. There's many Christians today. There's the, there was the Van Impies of the world, the Hal Lindsays, the, the, um, the John Hagees, who are constantly looking at symbols and signs and getting Christians to buy their books and to look everywhere else except for well, they, they make them look at the Bible, but they're not looking for the right things. They're looking everywhere else for what God's going to do next because they're waiting for the world to end. And they're wanting to know when it's going to end. They want to know. Now, James points out something for us that James points out that, you know, never say, he says, let your yes be less and your no be, your yes be yes and your no be no. And don't say tomorrow we're going to do such and such because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Say, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. Um, and that's what James says, because we can't know the future. We can't predict the future. And Jesus didn't want us to waste our time trying to predict the future or know when he was going to come back. Once again, if we go back to our passage, Matthew 24, verse 36, it says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Very explicit. Now, there was a book called 88 reasons Christ will return in 1988. And in that book, doing, dealing with this verse, I don't remember the author's name, but I know he was a former NASA scientist who started trying to do the math. And he decided that because the Greek word oida in there means cannot know, instead of it being you know a, a negative form of gnosko, he decided that just means that we can't know it for sure, but that doesn't mean that we can't try finding out the week. So he decided that since day and hour are there, that he can still try finding out the year, month, week. So that's the, the reason that that book happens. And that's just all some a messed up version of the Greek. But even the context of this passage tells us, if we look in verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those day, in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Think about that picture. And it's a brilliant picture. You know, Noah gets in the ark and God shuts the door. There was no way for anyone on earth. They didn't have meteorologists back then, but even if they did, they could not have predicted what was going to happen because you can't predict the earth opening up and water coming out. Um, that's just not in the, that's not in the weather radar. So you can't predict that. They had no idea it was going to happen. And then he mentions later on here, you, you get this idea of a watchman. In verse 43, if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. 
Makes total sense. You know, whenever you have to have an electrician or a repairman come out and they give you that, ah, uh, well, we'll be out there between 12 and 4. And you're like, okay, I'll take off, uh, I'll take off work and I'll, I'll be home 12 to 4. And, of course, they show up around 6, right? It's always, it's always late. So you've got this whole time that you're at home just waiting, and it's always they come, in, they come way late, or they, they came early and you missed them. Um, well, anyway, if you knew the actual time they'd be there, you would try showing up at that exact time. You wouldn't wait for hours and hours and hours. So if the watchman would have known the hour the thief was going to come, he would have waited, and that would have been a terrible thief. You know, I'm gonna, the thief should scope the place out and know when to strike. Well, in the same way, when Christ comes back, it'll be like the thief coming in the night. We won't know when he's going to come. Now, Christ gave them a warning earlier in the, in the Olivet Discourse, back in verse, um, uh, back in, in uh, hold on, give me a second here. Um, oh, here we go. In verse 11, he says, And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. So this idea that, that basically there's going to be false teachers who come. These false teachers will come, like in verse 24, it says, There shall arise false Christs and false prophets that will show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they will deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert. Go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. Believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For whosoever the carcass is, or for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eager eagles be gathered together. So basically, there's going to be false teachers who try leading the people of God astray. And he even says there, if it were possible, the very elect, which cannot be led astray. But there's going to be Christians who are deceived. Many of these Christians who are deceived are not reading their Bibles. They're not studying. They're not learning. Another thing to consider in the 1800s, when we go back to that in Christianity, and unfortunately the 1900s were mainly a byproduct of it in America, there was this growing idea of anti-intellectualism, this idea of, you know, not really studying, not really knowing, not really learning. Now, part of that came out of a good fear. You had this idea of higher criticism, this idea of criticizing the Bible, critiquing it down to a point, trying to dismiss all the miraculous and, you know, kind of just using, uh, basically using God as just filling in the gaps until finally they got rid of God altogether. And the anti-intellectualism of the 1800s was kind of a knee-jerk reaction against that, was it, uh, against higher criticism, because you saw great Christian institutions like the University of New Jersey, also known as Princeton or Harvard, becoming liberal. And that was even in the 1700s, 1800s, the late 1700s. They were becoming liberal and this, believing higher criticism, denying the miraculous in the Bible, denying that um, got any of the supernatural, which if you deny a supernatural in the Bible, you might as well toss it out, which they got to, like I said, about a century later. Um, so you can see why they had that knee-jerk reaction, but the problem is once you stop centering yourself on something to believe, it all goes haywire. We talked about the Restoration Movement, the, Christian, the Disciples of Christ Church, the Christian Church in America. There's several other groups. They often teach that there's no creed but the Bible. The problem is, well, number one, that's a creed, but the main problem is if you have no creed but the Bible, well, you haven't made enough points or you haven't been consistent enough because what do you do with which Christ or who is Christ? Well, once you start defining Christ, you're creating a creed. If you don't define it, then anything goes. 
anything goes to the point where you have Jim Jones as a part of your, your denomination. So, it's important to know what we believe and why we believe it, so we will not be led astray by false prophets. You can go on and on studying. You can learn about Heaven's Gate. You can learn about all these really weird, well, I guess that's probably the weirdest, but you can learn about all these really weird out there cults and religions. But at the end of the day, the most important thing for us to know is that we don't know when Christ will come back and that we need to know what we believe and why we believe it so when we hear false teaching, we won't be led astray. So what should we do instead? What should we do instead of, of watching? Well, Jesus gives us a solution to that in verse um, in chapter 25, so the next part of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. 31 through 46, and it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon his, the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, when I, for I was hungry, um, hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed thee, or thirsty, and we gave thee drink? When saw we a stranger and took him in, took thee in, or naked, or clothed thee? Or when saw we sick, thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say to them on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, and into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, and ye gave me no meat, I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in, naked, and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when we saw thee, uh, when, saw, saw, when saw we thee a hungred? a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to the one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So what are Christians supposed to be doing instead of trying to figure out when Christ is coming back? Well, we're supposed to be continuing the work of Christ, doing what he did, which is t uh, loving God first and loving others. Um, so keeping God's, keeping God's commandments and then seeking to help the least of these. You see, like, giving hungry to those who have no food, giving uh, water to those who have nothing to drink, taking in, taking in people who need help, helping them get back on their feet. Um, basically doing good, doing good, doing the work of Christ. But more than that, we're also supposed to be taking the gospel to the nations, which he says back in chapter 24, as we saw there in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then the end shall come. So we're supposed to be uh, caring for those in need, caring for the widows and orphans, doing that ministry. But also, we're, as Christians, we should be, so we need to be a light to the nations, uh, if you remember in, when Jeremiah is, is um, prophesying 
to the people of Israel. Basically, they're supposed to be a blessing when they get taken into captivity. Be a blessing to those who you're in captivity against. So as Christians, we should be a blessing to our neighbors by loving them as we love ourselves, as Christ has commanded us. But also, we should be taking the gospel to the kingdom, or to the, to the world. It says, um, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations. Then the end shall come. So an interesting thing about Christopher Columbus, it's kind of off the wall, but Christopher Columbus was a Christian. Now, there's some things he might have done that were wrong, but he wasn't just trying to find trade passages as we get taught in school. He wasn't just trying to find trade passages to the other side of the world, like quicker routes to get there. He was trying to find, and you can find this in his writings, he wanted to find a way to get missionaries around the world quicker. Because Christopher Columbus looked at this passage and he goes, well, wait a minute. If I can find a quicker way to India or into Asia, then we can get missionaries there faster and we can bring about the end of the world. Was kind of how he figured. Now, that's not obviously Christopher Columbus and the missionaries don't have the power to bring about the end of the world. But he looked at this verse and he had this optimism that, wait a minute, if I take the gospel to the nations or if we find a way, we can make it happen quicker. So that's what we should be focusing on is getting the gospel to our neighbors getting the gospel around the world, getting it to our family and our friends. And we need to be focused on helping those in need around us, not looking down on them, but pull, pulling them up and helping them. So there's, that's kind of where we need to be. And I want to close with this. If we look at Acts, look at Acts chapter 1 with me. We go to Acts chapter 1. All right. So I'm going, to, I'm going to start here in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? So they were thinking, okay, now the, the, he, Christ just came back from the dead. He's about, to, he's about to do the military restoration of Israel. It's going to be the Messiah coming on the white horse. But that's not to happen yet. That'll be the second coming. It's what Jesus says to them here. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, and, at, and after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, when he, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So they returned to Jerusalem, from the mountain called Olivet, which is, a, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. All right, so why do we bring that up? Well, once again, Jesus tells them it's not for you to know the times and seasons when God's going to do this. And then we see Jesus gets, ascends into heaven, and all the disciples are staring up at the cloud. They can't, you know, well, obviously they can't believe what they just saw. But they're still staring, and the angels tell them, what are you doing looking up? He's coming back, you know. Like, get to it. 
is kind of is essentially what, what, what they were doing. So they, they went and they got to it. They, they replace Judas and they pray and then Pentecost happens and the gospel starts spreading. And by the end of Acts, it has spread all those places that Jesus said it would. So as Christians, what do we do with all this? Well, instead of worrying when we see wars and rumors of wars happen, which happen all the time, uh, wars have been happening since the day that Jesus told them there would be wars and rumors of wars. Um, instead of worrying, like, is this the war? Is, is, is the rapid increase of technology that we see in the 20th century, was that the re- is that mean Jesus is coming soon? Christians have believed Jesus is coming soon. Since the very beginning, the disciples lived it out. They, the apostles, they lived every day as if Jesus was coming back that day. They, they did not stop working until the day they died or were killed. So as, as Christians today, we should be doing the same thing. We should be taking the gospel to the nations that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He kept the law perfectly. We can't in our sin, but he did it for us. He died the death we deserve. He took the wrath of God on the cross in our place. So that if we trust in him as Lord, we will, we will be given his good works and he will take our sin. And when he rose again, he rose again so that we too can rise again in newness of life if we believe. So if, if you haven't believed that gospel today, I pray you would. And if you do believe that gospel, I pray that you would, help, you would join this glorious cause of Christ and take it to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the love you've shown us through your son Jesus. Thank you for your word and how it's true yesterday and today and forever, and as you said, or as it was said in Matthew 24, that the words will not pass away. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can trust it. We know Christ is coming back, and we can't wait for that day, but God, until that day, help us to be busy doing the work of the kingdom, making the gospel known, taking it to the ends of the earth, and sharing your love with the least of these. Thank you for allowing us to be part of this mission and help us to, um, to do it with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to seek you with all our heart, mind, and strength. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.